1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. I'll read through here, and as you follow along, some of your translations will have slightly different phrases for some of these statements, and uh, you know, I'm glad to deal with that even during our sermon discussion and so on, but I want to focus on some key points as we go through a somewhat difficult passage. There are phrases here that are a little tricky, that, are, that you read and you say, what exactly does this mean? So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. All right. Now, so let's break down this passage. And you're, if you're sitting there and thinking about the length of your hair, or the lack of the hair, or any other point, let's break down this passage by considering three topics. Headship, head covering, and head knowledge. Right? So first, headship. You know, when you think about these phrases that he uses here, and you look at the original text and what he's expressing and so on, there is, even in these verses, a meaning of source. So he says, from the man came the woman, from, you know, and so on, from, and the man came from Christ, and Christ comes from God, or God, you know, God and Christ, Jesus, the, the, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, all three in one. But there was this phrasing that is used in the Bible that God sends his son, right? From the Father, the Son. So there is a meaning here that could be simply about source. You know, you, you, when you talk about a river, you'll say the head of the river, meaning where it comes from, the source. 
And so there's a meaning that is used, that is implied in this use of the word head that has to do with source, that there's a source of this kind and so on. But, but if you argue that it is only about source, well, then the Bible has a number of other portions, a number of other places where it does speak about headship and this idea of being the head with regard to position and authority. So it's not simply about source or sequence. God, Christ, man, woman. It's not just about sequence. It's not just about the order in that sense, right? Or the, the source in that sense. There is also much that the Bible speaks about in terms of position, meaning role and responsibility, and then authority that would be exercised. And so the Bible speaks about husbands and wives. And we looked at some of that when we looked in Ephesians. We looked at some of that when there were some references to that in Romans. And now in 1 Corinthians, we, again, we will encounter some of those things and we'll come back into that and this idea of what should, you know, what, what, is, what is the headship or the role that has to be played and what role does the husband have in terms of the wife and what, to, what role does the pastor or a leader in the church have in, in relation to the congregation. So there are a number of truths like that that we will go through and that we'll continue to expand on. The point that I want to make here, though, even as we're you know, dealing with this specific passage, is that this statement about position or headship or this in the, you know, from this and so on, and he's talking about Adam and Christ and so on, it's not primarily about the, it's not about whether one is superior or the other is inferior. Do, do you see what I'm trying to express? The point here that he is making is not, even if you think about position, authority, source, whatever ways you think of that word head, he's not saying the man is superior, the man is somehow better than, the man is somehow in, in some elevated status as compared to the woman. In fact, we're going to get into that phrase in just a, just a little bit here, where he makes that very explicit. He talks about the fact that it's not that kind of a hierarchy. Right? And, so, and we have other scriptures that speak about the fact that in, the, in Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew, there's neither Gentile you know, or Jew, and there's neither male nor female. This idea that this, there's a distinction based on gender that somehow makes one gender superior to another is not a biblical concept. That is something that we as human beings and men in general have held to because that's an easy way to dominate, to have power. Right? You say, oh, you know, men are superior, men do. And that's not at all the meaning of these phrases, these truths. And it's not trying to put women down. In fact, as you read these scriptures, and I'll, one more, I'll come back to one more reference about what the calling is. You see, the, the fact is that he's not talking about a position of dominance. He's talking about uh, authority and position and headship in terms of function in the body of Christ. So one more thing to keep in mind as we talk about this, this is, these are Christian truths. These are biblical truths. This is for a person 
who would be following the Lord and worshiping him and adhering to him, right? And in that context, these are truths that apply to the home and to the church. We don't take these statements and say, this applies to all men and all women. All men don't have authority over all women. All men cannot say, I am the head of all women. Or any man cannot say, I am the head of any woman. That's not what the Bible is talking about. It is speaking about the roles and responsibilities in the context of the home, the family, and in the context of the church, the body of Christ. Okay? So everybody tracking on that. So headship, this idea here that there is an authority that the man has. And, and by the way, we, we subject ourselves to this kind of thing in many different ways, in many institutions. Even when you go to work for some employer, you are definitely submitting yourself to a certain position, a certain authority, a certain role and responsibility. You willingly do that. You don't at that point say, well, does this mean that this man or this woman or whoever else is in charge is superior to me? We don't, we don't think of it in those ways. We say they are in a specific role. They're fulfilling a certain set of responsibilities. They have a certain set of authority inherent in that position. And so I work with that. I subject to that. I listen to that. I follow the directions from that person. Right? So we willingly do that in other institutions or in other ways. It is a similar truth that I'm expressing in terms of saying when we talk about headship in the body of Christ, when we talk about authority and position and all of that in the, in the body of Christ, learn, make sure that you're paying attention to what the Bible is actually calling us to, not some other construct in our minds. Right? This, there can be an easy abuse of power, authority, privilege, position. Instead, we have to say, what is the word really getting us to? How is it getting us to these truths? Right? So, headship. So, even as we talk about headship, this passage then goes into this next topic about, or next set of things about head coverings. And, you know, prophesying with your head covered or uncovered, hair covering or not covering, shaving the head, all of these kinds of things. And the question becomes, how do we understand this? Now, again, I want you to notice in verses 12 through 14 how the statement is made, uh, pardon me, not, uh, it, yeah, well, actually before even that, where verse 5, where he says, where every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head is the same as having the head shaved. It is, he's, he's making a statement about the ministry of the women in the church. They're praying, they're prophesying, they're being involved, they're doing these things. And then he speaks about head coverings. So when you look at this section, you have to realize that he's really focused on propriety in worship. How should worship be done in the church so that it is glorifying God, it is honoring the, the truths of God, the word of God, and it is done in orderly manner with the people around you? Okay? 
So keep that in mind. It is about the propriety in worship. It is about orderliness. In fact, as we go in through 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, we'll be learning about spiritual gifts and about love and then comes back to the point of spiritual gifts. But in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, he says quite a bit about exercising spiritual gifts so that all things are done in order, that there is an orderliness to the functioning of the body of Christ. So, so again, keep in mind that these statements that he's making here is not primarily about the head covering. It is primarily about how we worship God. Okay? Now, having said that, let's consider the cultural relevance and context. In that context in which Paul is describing these things, there were some cultural norms. So if a woman was married... Typically, she would be veiled. She would cover her head and her, you know, she would be veiled for modesty, for sending a specific message that she is married. And when you had uncovered heads, that was essentially, you know, there could be, there could be all sorts of other implications from it. But it was essentially saying, I'm not married, I'm not in this authority or whatever. Right? So there were some cultural ways in which people expressed themselves or the women dressed or didn't dress or so on. And what Paul is pointing out is, when you come together in this way and you are gathered for the purpose of worshiping God, don't do anything that would be a cultural aberration. Meaning, if somebody walked in and they saw you in this way, behaving in this way, would they say, oh, I see that these people are doing things that are orderly or that are glorifying God? Or would they say, these people are doing something that is terribly wrong? I mean, why would they uncover their head? Or why would they do this? Or why would they, you know, and, and in our current context, in our contemporary context, there are many, many examples of places where you can, without even hesitating, say this is disorderly, right? What is being done is disorderly. There is a focus on self or on the flesh or on pleasure or whatever else and not on God. And so that's what Paul is getting at. Don't let your worship to God be seen as something that is disorderly by the people that are even coming in. Let it be in the norms of what is the culturally accepted way to, be, to even behave or to dress or to do anything of that kind. Now, again, keep in mind that this is in a context where the cultural norms were quite prevalent. It wasn't like we have today where you have a lot of subcultures and each subculture does its own thing, dresses its own way, and everybody has gotten to the point where we say to each other, well, you know, that's what they're doing. And so the, what is culturally acceptable today is very different from what it used to be in the past, right? What was culturally acceptable at that point in time was a much more uniform, homogenous sort of expression. Everybody's behaved in a certain way. They lived in a certain way. They followed similar traditions. Even if they were not following Yahweh, even if they were not following Jesus, they still had certain cultural norms that were similar to some of the people around them. 
Today, it's not quite that way. We can't say, you know, so if, if at that point in time they said, you know, don't you know long hair is this? We can't make that same statement today. We can't say, don't you know that long hair is this, and imply the same thing. We can't say of this in the same way, don't you know that if you don't dress like this, then you're not being godly. Now, mind you, there are Christian groups that do take that position. And you may be familiar with the Amish or others who dress a certain way. And they believe that in order to honor God and to glorify God and to have that distinctiveness, they must do it like that. So they, they have their facial hair in a certain way, they have their head covered, they have the dress the attire for both men and women that are quite prescribed. And they believe that that is the way that they should live according to these kinds of statements, right? So, I, so again, we're not imposing any dress code, but there is that expectation that whatever you do, what, even as we were talking about this last week, whether you're eating, drinking, dressing, or behaving, you would do it for the glory of God. You would say, am I draw doing this to draw attention to myself, or am I doing this to give glory to God and to be in fellowship with my brothers and sisters? So if that's your priority, if that's what's motivating your thinking, you will behave in a certain way. You won't try to create you know, some kind of disorder, you'll say, how is it that I can participate with my brother and sister in fellowship in this way, right? And then the other thing, so, uh, and, and by the way, when I speak about distinctiveness of dress and so on, I'm, I made a reference to the Amish, but those of you from other cultures, other places, you know this very distinctly, distinctly that especially in the past, you could tell what religion a person was based on what they wore. They would dress a certain way. Right? This is very true in India, and this is very true in other places, where you would know what the person's religious beliefs were because of the way they dressed. Right? And so in, you'll notice this in other cultures around the world. So this idea of being distinctive, of, of conforming to certain norms, of doing these things in such a way that you would, we would be expressing your worship to God and your message about who you are as a Christian, that's not just an ancient thing. It continues in our contemporary context, but it needs to be understood in light of these scriptures. Right? So, again, the imposition of a rule on top of that is actually going beyond what this word is actually telling us. Right? It's not to say from now on, you know, all men should have only, the, the hair should not hit the collar. It, if I, when I say these statements, you know what I'm talking about, right? This is very, these, these are common things that have happened in our Christian context. Or the woman's hair length must hit the shoulder. Right? We, we've made these kinds of rules. And the way that we need to understand this is to say, where and how is the Lord pointing us to, to worship him with propriety, with order, with reverence, with giving glory to God? How are we doing that, right? Which actually leads us to this next point when we talk about when we talk about head headship and head coverings, and the other point is then about head knowledge, um, so that we would say it is it is not just about what we know in our in our you know just casually, but it is about the head knowledge that we have, right? We presume a certain level of 
understanding. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were saying to Paul, we know. We know best. We know what needs to be done. We know how we need to address these things. And what Paul is pointing out is that if you're relying on head knowledge, on knowledge that puffs up, you will be led into pride, selfishness, and disorder rather than if it's about the heart. Because when it's about the heart, you will not say, I have freedom, you know? I have rights and privileges. I can color my hair whatever way I want. I can wear whatever clothes I want. I can do anything that I feel like. He's saying, you will not think like that. Instead, you will say, how do I best fellowship with my brother and my sister? What can I do that would bring me in harmony with them and allow me to be worshiping God together with them without any distraction, without anything that would take us away from one another and take us away from the presence of God. That's what he's going after. So the head knowledge, not the knowledge that puffs up, but the knowledge of, of the Lord that drives our heart. Now, when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and in there, there's a number of different things about how, you know, the things that, the wisdom of God, the things that come from God, how we should understand the wisdom of God, what we should do about the wisdom of God, how that is, you know, given, giving life to us, and so on. And then right in the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, in verse 14, it says this, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The things that are of the Spirit come from the Spirit and cannot be discerned by just our human head knowledge. If we're thinking, okay, I know what to do, I know how to do it, I know where to go, I know how to go about this, then what we will do is we will keep relying on our head knowledge. We will say, this is the thing that I must do, and this is the thing that I must not do, so therefore, I know, I know best. But what he says here is, the things that we must pursue and the way in which we need to live out our Christian lives has to be by the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit with discernment that comes from the Holy Spirit. Discernment that allows us to distinguish between good and evil. This discernment that allows us to say, this is what I need to do for the fellowship. This is what I should not do for the sake of the fellowship, for the sake of the others. Right? So when he's talking about it, he says spiritually discerned and, and pursuing it in that way, which means that instead of head knowledge, if it's to be heart attitude and spiritual discernment, that means that there has to be a deliberate act on our end not first and foremost to define and follow rules, but to know and pursue the Holy Spirit. The reason I'm also making this statement is that we're just about to get into, we're, next week we'll be talking about the Lord's Supper again, and there's a different perspective that we'll have on that based on the first Corinthians chapter 11, those final verses in chapter 11. But we're getting ready to go through chapters 12 through 14 about the spiritual gifts. And if we don't get these truths right first, we will look at spiritual gifts as something that we have to have for ourselves to promote ourselves. I'm a prophet. I'm a healer. I'm a speaker. I'm a this. I'm a that. I have this gift. But it was not meant for that purpose. The spiritual gifts were for the building up of the church. 
The spiritual gifts for us were, were for us to serve one another. The spiritual gifts were so that we would complement one another, so that we would say, I have this and you have this, let's put that together. We're able to multiply this impact that we have in Christ Jesus. So that was the reason that the spiritual gifts were even given. So he's saying here, and he's led up into this point to say, spiritual things have to be spiritually discerned. Spiritual things have to be known in the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you'll just be puffed up in your own thinking. You will do all sorts of stuff. And to repeat the statement, instead of focusing primarily on rules and following rules, we've got to focus primarily on the Holy Spirit and pursuing him. How do we know the Spirit? How can we be filled with the Spirit? How can we be led by the Spirit? How can we hear the voice of the Spirit that says, this is the way, walk in it? How many things in our lives on a daily basis would be different if we are actively pursuing the Holy Spirit, discerning things that are spiritual, and therefore applying these things in a way that will allow us to know the Lord Jesus, right? Okay. Let me go on, and I think there's a thing there. But uh, if, we, if we do all of these things, if we're moving in these ways, if we're asking the Lord to have his way in us in these, these, with these attitudes and so on, it leads to us being humble and submissive, right? The very impact of moving according to the spirit, of being discerning of the spirit, of looking at the word in these ways, would result in us being humble and submissive. That's what is necessary, that's what's undergirding all of the instruction that Paul is giving, which leads us to this last point, which is to say that we respond and apply the word of God that we have heard by not being independent. We respond and apply by not being independent. Because what is, what is it that he talks about in this first part? In verses 11 and 12, Paul says, nevertheless, after having talked about headship and about head coverings and about you know, authority, position, all of these kinds of things, he says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. What's the point he's making? Don't think that you can do something on your own. Don't think that you are independent, whether by gender or by in some other way, by capability, by skill, by gifting. Don't think that you are somehow independent. You are dependent on many things and particularly dependent on others in the body of Christ and on God. That has to be the attitude that d directs our thinking. That has to be what, what helps us to move forward in these ways. We would not be saying, nevertheless, you know, or, or pardon me, not nevertheless, uh, because of these truths, because there's headship, because there's all of these authority, I can do what I want and everybody else has to do what I say. No, we're not independent. We are saying, I will subject myself, I will be humbling myself, I will submit one to another mutually for the benefit of the other because I recognize that the Lord is bringing us together in a dependent manner, 
The parts of the body have to work together where the parts of the body are saying, I need you. I don't, I can't do without you. I can't do this on my own. I can't just go off in my own direction. I need you and I want you. And so we are dependent on one another. We are also dependent on the Lord. We are dependent on the Lord. Men and women are dependent on each other and men and women are dependent on God. This, this, this whole statement that Paul is making, everything that he's coming up to, is to say we are dependent on one another and we are dependent on God for all that is to be done in this life. That is the point that he's making. It's not about you know, how we dominate or not or authority or everything else. It is about the fact that we would say, because I'm dependent on the Lord and I look to him and I discern spiritually from him, I'm able to live this life out effectively. Now, as we think about that and as we look at that and we say, okay, Lord, what does that mean for me practically? How do I live this out in a way that will engage with you know, all the people and do all the things that are necessary and so on? We have to pay attention to what the Lord is telling us in terms of this dependency. The dependency on God is, is leading us to do at least two things. One, to die to self, and two, to live in Him. What does that look like for us practically? How does that you know, show up in, a for, in terms of our day-to-day -day lives and in the life of the church? I said earlier that headship includes and has this point about authority, position, roles, responsibilities, and so on. So we do have to pay attention to that and give practical consideration to that. Who is in a position of leadership in the church? What is their role and responsibility? When the people come into the church, in what way are they connecting to those positions and so on, right? How are we structuring, organizing, and moving forward? We have to pay attention to those things. We don't ignore them. We don't say, well, you know, somehow it'll take place. We pay attention to them, and we put in place the best things that we can discern and that the best that we can apply the wisdom of God in. We don't ignore those things. Right? But as we do that, as we pay attention to those things, there is a potential for us to make mistakes. And that is why we have to keep coming back to these truths and saying, what is the intent? Again, the intent is on us to glorify God, to have propriety in worship, to have order in our worship, to do those things that will be led by the Spirit and ultimately lead into this point of dependency so that we would be dependent on others, we would be dependent on the Lord, the church, the people around us would not be looking to us as individuals. Oftentimes what's happening in the church today is that those outside the church and those even inside the church are looking to individuals and then it becomes that person. So this celebrity pastor, this you know, gifted worship leader, this specific you know, kind of role that this person is. And the focus becomes on that person to the point that if that person has any kind of fall or any kind of a fault, it affects the whole church. The practical application of this is to think about the whole body, is to say how is it that the whole body of Christ, 
the church universal is being represented before the Lord and how can we do things in such a way that the world from the outside, when they look at us, will know clearly this is the truth of God. This is how we're living. Right? So, this, this point of application for us in this, in this regard, like I said, I, I don't want for us to walk away from this passage thinking in any way to be contentious. Paul uses that phrase here, and I was, when I was preparing, I was thinking, should I call this message, don't be contentious? Right? Because the point is that we can take these kinds of truths, these kinds of statements, and become contentious with each other or with other groups of people. Right? We can say, oh, you're not doing this that way. I am. You're, you're wrong. I'm right. And we become contentious in that way. What Paul uses this phrase for in this passage is to say, this is the norms, these are the things, these are what I'm expecting you to do, so that you would not be contentious to live according to your own freedoms, licentiousness, that you wouldn't say, I'm free to do whatever I want, as the Corinthians were doing. Instead, you would say, because I'm in the Lord Jesus, because I'm dependent on him, because I'm reunited with him, I will conform. I will adjust. I will forego. I will do that which is necessary to make sure that the unity in the body of Christ is maintained. So we're going into you know, all sorts of things in the church and all sorts of things that we're praying for, people joining the church, positions to be filled, all sorts of things of that nature. Let's keep this in mind. Let's pray. Let's say, Lord, I need you to move. I need you to live in and through me. I need you to move so that what I do and how I do it will be led by the Spirit. I want to take a little time for us to pray. And when, one of the things that I also want to point out as we're going through this kind of a passage, um, and I mentioned this in terms of cultural context and how to be able to address a passage like this, there are passages like this that are kind of difficult, right, in the sense that we read them and we say, how should we think about them? There's another passage that we're going to come to that says women should keep quiet in church. But at the same time, here in this passage, Paul speaks very clearly and says, when a woman prays or prophesies in the church. So he's not, those two statements could not be true, true at the same time. He's making a contextual, a cultural statement that we've got to understand carefully. So let's make sure that we don't walk away from this with the wrong message, but rather by saying, oh Lord God, how can I be submitted to you? How can I be dependent on you? And how can I live with my brothers and sisters in this way? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that Lord, you have given us life and you've given it to us abundantly. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy. We thank you, Lord, that as we read these scriptures and would apply them in our lives, we seek not to be led by our own thinking, but, Lord, to be doing what your Spirit leads us to do. Father, to live in such a way that we will be in harmony with our brothers and sisters. Father, to live in such a way that our speech, our conduct, our attire, our interactions, our way of dealing with decision-making, our response to something that may not be right, everything would be done in preference of one another, in serving one another, in seeking to glorify God, in maintaining the fellowship of the body of Christ, in being 
Lord, of blessing to one another and doing this in a way that honors you and glorifies you. Help us, Lord, to keep that in mind. Help us, Lord, to pay attention to those truths. Help us to pay attention to your Holy Spirit so that what is built up in these days is the body of Christ and that through that, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is advanced. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, as you continue to let these truths work in us, even this coming week, even in the rest of our days, Lord, that we want to apply these truths consistently, Lord, so that we will always look to you for the guidance that we need. We ask this together this morning in Jesus' precious name. Amen.